Welcome back, listeners. On this episode, I spoke to Mara Lepari Shalut about her work on Pachinko. We discussed combining the poetry and the prose of the novel and the script, patchworking between over half a dozen cities in Korea, Japan, and Canada, and much more. But I just wanted to start out by saying like how much I absolutely just love sort of falling into this world um, that you guys have created. Um, it's a story I haven't ever seen before. Um, and it's so beautiful. Um, and I, I just, I really just have to applaud you for the tremendous work that you guys have done. It's just, I, I, it's just, it's, it's so beautiful. Thank you. It's very kind of you to say. No, of course. Um, well, before diving into um, this project, I also just wanted to ask you a quick question about your time on Mrs. America, because that's actually probably one of my favorite shows in the past, like, five years. Um, so if there's anything that you just wanted to recap from that experience, I would love to just sort of pick your brain on that for a second. You know, it's funny, as different as those two shows are, Pachinko and This is America, in a lot of ways, they're very similar in terms of the, um, the task at hand by the supporting technical teams in that they're both these um, kind of sprawling character pieces that take place over time and that go into different characters' lives. And so it's not like typical television at all. You know, you, you don't have carried sets. Every, every episode, you go into a new world and you really have to flush that out. But it's not our job to be another dominant character in the series where we're supporting roles. So it's, you know, I think for both projects, for me, it was making sure we gave as much kind of context and scope to the stories that were being told, but not to take over. You know, in like, for me, doing period, it's always trying to be mindful of not getting into tropes or cliches of the period, but to kind of, to, to present as much detail and realism as possible and to kind of take a step back and, and help the audience and the cast as well understand um, the context of the story that's being told. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, obviously Mrs. America is, is very different in that it's, um, you know, takes place in the United States in the 70s and, and 60s. And Pachinko is vastly different in terms of, of what's being examined. But, um, but in terms of breaking it down and understanding what my job was, they were ironically very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much were you able to glean from the script um, from that? I, I, I've talked to a few people on the Pachinko team and they have all said that um, it's, um, it, it, it was very much in the script and you guys didn't have to and like it wasn't in the text of the actual book or anything like that. It was very much um, what was written on the on the page. Is that is that true for you? Um, Sue's scripts are just incredible, and they're they are really embedded with so much detail and context. And I think it's been talked about before in a lot of articles that I've read. But she even went so far as to describe the opening credits in each episode, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
you know, that attention to detail is something that is so delightful as, you know, technical members of the teams, they have to put things forward because you really understand what the objective is and, and what you're trying to, to do. Um, and, but, but I will say Minjin Lee's book, I found a lot of detail. I mean, there's, it's the right, both of them, to me, um, Minjin, the, the novel is so um, relentless in its prose and its description of things and its kind of banality of life, but just kind of being this exhausting thing. But there's so much detail and description about the spaces that are being inhabited and the food that's being eaten. Mm-hmm. And Sue's scripts are much more like poetry. You know, there's allusions and there's references to things, but it doesn't necessarily get into really deep description. Um, but there's so much emotional context to what's happening that there, it's a huge jumping off point. And so for me, the job was really to kind of merge those two sensibilities, the poetry and the prose, and make sure we were getting all that exacting detail about how life is lit, is lit, lived that's in the novel, but also um, kind of the examination of how different lives affect each other, which is what Sue's exploration and the, the scripts were with kind of overlapping time periods and, and things like that. That's beautiful. I love that. Um, and so how were you approached for the project? Um, so the line producer, Richard Middleton, and I had worked together years before on a few different projects. I wasn't designing at the time, but it was art directing. And we'd always um, kind of kept in touch um, about crew referrals and other things. And so he initially reached out to me to see if I would be available. And um, and I happened to be, I live in New Orleans. And so I happened to be coming to LA um, and he was like, I think you should come and meet Sue. And so I went into the meeting pretty blind about the project. I hadn't read the book. Um, and I think that that probably was for the best because I wasn't like, by the time I read the novel, I was so overwhelmed by how much I loved it, but also just how um, dense and epic it was. Mm-hmm. And so I went into the meeting and just kind of was swept away by Sue's charisma and her um, intention of what the show could be. And so by the time I read the book, <laughs> I, was so, I was so kind of like interested in doing it because of Sue that there was no going back at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it, it I have to say once once I read the scripts and the novel um, I was a, a pretty much I was at a pretty big loss as to like how the hell we were going to make this thing um, and and that was before the pandemic had started um, we had my meeting with them was in February of 2020 and um, we were supposed to go scout like March 11th or 12th and March 10th is when the shutdown happened so. We were all getting ready to get on a plane to go scout Korea and Japan um, when when the world was supposed to shut down for two weeks. And we all know how that panned out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just said something um, about Sue's intention for the show. Um, what was that sort of, what, what did she want to get across with the show um, when she was speaking to you? I think we have very similar sensibilities in terms of um, wanting as much 
kind of visceral detail and gritty reality to things um, that, that it wasn't going to be a stylized show, that this was something that was going to really exhaustively present life in, in detailed ways. And the way she talked about food, um, the way she talked about um, just the smallest detail of things is something as a designer that's really exciting to hear that, that it's not, you know, it's not an afterthought of the writing, that it's something that wants to be showcased and developed. And so I really connected with her on so many levels, but I think also her passion for the story. It Sometimes you go into these meetings and you wonder if anybody involved actually cares <laughs> about what's being made. And um, to hear someone speak about her personal connection um, and the overlaps between her own family story and what was in the, the scripts of Pachinko was just beautiful. And um, it, it was very easy to, to, to want to support that in any way possible. Mm -hmm. And so going back to sort of mapping out this epic that you've spoken of and or spoken of, and obviously we all see on screen, how do you start that? Because it is so massive. How, how do you begin such a process? Well, I think what's crazy about Pachinko is that um, we kind of had to throw out all the normal ways you would do that because of the pandemic. And so normally... I would have had some exhaustive time to go out and scout so that we could come up with a production plan of, of how much of each portion of the story needed to be made in each place. And so when, when I signed on, there had already been a, a plan formed that we would be shooting in uh, Vancouver, Korea, and Japan. And um, Vancouver, we'd have a lot of our set builds. And then in Korea and Japan, we'd take advantage of location work. And... Um, so obviously scouting wasn't going to be possible at that time. We couldn't get in or out of the countries we needed to go to. So we started location scouts and managers in each country. And I would send them reference packages and images and, um, you know, pretty much anything I could get my hands on visually that would help inform roughly what we were looking for. And, um, and my initial kind of breakdown was, let's do an exhaustive survey of all three countries or all three hubs and see what the best in each is kind of pulling out. So even though Vancouver was meant to be a set build hub and not necessarily a location hub, there were some similarities in the geography of Vancouver that lended itself to be a good um, double for some of the landscapes of Korea. So we had teams in all three places working and I would have Zoom calls at all hours of the day and night because everyone was in different time zones. And um, we just kept kind of going back and saying, okay, well, what about this? Well, you know, that's great, but what else can you find? And meanwhile, the studio was trying to flush out a strategy for how to make a TV show during a pandemic. And mm -hmm. so there was a lot of kind of stops and starts and going back to the drawing board. And what was amazing about that is... Um, it gave me a lot of time to do my own research and to really sit with the story and the characters and um, kind of exhaustively examine what we needed to do for each thing. So even though we didn't know where or how, I could get to um, 
a just more comprehensive understanding of the task at hand. And I always find with television, there's no time while you're shooting to go back to the drawing board and figure out what, what the solution to a specific set is. If you don't have a foundation of research and development beforehand, you kind of get stopped in your tracks because it's so relentless and how much you have to produce. You have to be able to answer questions every day confidently and know why you're doing that. Mm -hmm. And so for this, having that incubation period of stops and starts with the production plan really let me learn about, you know, construction methods in Korea and Japan and kind of the anthropological workings of what the houses, you know, how, how people cooked. Uh, what they were doing and 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 all of the kind of um, set dressing and prop related work that was going to be coming up, and you you don't get that typically on shows. Usually you you have kind of like launch into scouting and launch into design development, and you don't have that time period to sit with your own kind of development thoughts and figure out what's going to happen. So I really felt lucky to have that time and. And we were also working to put together a visual pick, uh, pitch package to Apple. So we were doing illustrations and concept art and for sets that we had no idea where they were going to be built. So it was very fascinating. Um, and in July, I think of 2020, um, we decided, I think it was like, okay, we got to, let's, let's, pick this up and, and go aggressive and start going. And so there was a plan to go to Korea for two weeks and then to come back, regroup and probably get an office started in Vancouver and then go back to Korea. And so um, our decorator, Hamish Purdy, who I believe you, you've spoken to as well, oh. our pastor, Ellen Froomed, and our supervising art director, Kim Zaharko, the four of us and our line producer all went on what we thought was gonna be a two week trip to Korea and then we got there and somehow within the first three days we found out that because of visas and other issues um, we couldn't go back and forth to Canada the delay could take up to like four weeks to get the turnaround to get people back and forth and so uh, they were like okay we're starting production in October in Korea and so all of us were like oh crap um, <laughs> this, is, this is happening fast. So I went on a, um, 10 day, like 18 hour a day scout with the team in Korea. Well, Kim Hamish and Ellen worked with figuring out our crew situation in Korea. And, um, at the end of that 10 days, we had come up with this absurd production plan to shoot in eight different cities in Korea um, from October, the end of October till Christmas. And it was just this kind of relentless schedule to try to get as much scope as we possibly could for the show. And um, I, I give everybody involved a lot of credit because this was kind of my grand scheme to just get as much on screen as possible. And it was, it, I think anyone with any sense as a producer would be like, it's absolutely ludicrous to do this because some of the cities were six or seven hours apart. Um, and so we, we, we didn't have much of a break from the second we landed August 1st until um, we, were, we were in Vancouver, January, the, you know, mid-January, it was pretty relentless in Korea. And we, we knew we wanted to get when we were, in, and I should also add, 
uh, we found out we would not be able to get in and out of Japan um, because of COVID restrictions. And the irony of that is, is that the bulk of the first season is takes place in Japan. And so uh, we couldn't rely on any kind of uh, location realities that that would have afforded. And so we were going to have to have Korea and Vancouver stand in for a lot of our Japanese exteriors. So the task at hand became a lot more challenging as a result of that, um, because Korean architecture has very distinct differences between Japanese architecture. And so we, we always had to be very mindful of, even though we were trying to, to shoot as much as that as possible there, because Vancouver was even more disparate than Korea was. Um, it still was a lot of work to just make sure we weren't visually kind of stunting things by, by being in the wrong country. Mm. So in Korea, we took advantage of the, um, there's, there were several things that we were trying to capture while we were there and Sunjo's village um, and, the, and the world around that was something that we, we wanted to capture in Korea. So it's, in the novel and the scripts, it's on an island in the southern portion of South Korea, south of Busan, and it's in an island called Yangdo. And there's not really a whole lot on Yangdo that was still appropriate for the time period we were trying to convey, which was the 19 teens and 20s. So we ended up going to a folk village in the middle of the country. And um, I should say, we had initially picked a folk village and on our tech scout, we um, we had a caravan, about 20 different vans because of COVID protocols. So there could only be two or three people in a van. So we were, we were in this massive caravan going to our folk village that we had picked. And on our way there, our location manager got a phone call saying that um, they had dropped out, that they didn't want us to build there. And so on the text out, we're all pulled over on the side of the road. And he called another folk village on the other side of the country. And miraculously, they were like, okay, you can come. And so we turned around and drove four hours to this village that we had never been to. So on the tech scout, uh, I mean, it's just crazy to think of now. We basically were cold scouting our hero location for the show. And we, we all rolled in and uh, Koganata, the director and I had everybody hold back and he and I just wandered the village for an hour. And we, we stumbled upon this lot of land that was right in the middle that had this beautiful view out to the mountains. And we were like, well, if it could be this, if we could build here, this would be pretty great. And um, we called the location manager Bong over and we were like, I don't know how you're gonna pull this off. Cause it was a UNESCO world heritage site. And we are like, there's no way they're gonna let us do this. But um, within 24 hours, they had agreed. And we, um, we had construction come like two days later and start the build for the hero set of, of the show. Um, so that was pretty crazy. But anyway, so we knew in Korea, we wanted the world of the village and us getting to build in, um, in a historic village was such a huge part of it. So that the view, sorry, my dinner was a little crazy. Um, so that the, the views from um, outside the house were all organic that we could just see houses in the distance or some of the um, agricultural fields um, that we shoot in, in other parts of the show. And it was just such a fantastic find. I think it was much, it ended up being much better than our initial location. So we lucked out with that. Um, and 
And, and then, but because it was an island, we actually had to shoot the cove elements, the comings and goings to the island in another place because this was a landlocked village that we were shooting at. So we actually shot the, the water work and the arrivals in Vancouver. And this was part of the, the crazy discovery of, of how to make the Chinko is um, there's a lot of things that are just this crazy patchwork matrix of trying to blend the eight cities in Korea and the work in Vancouver. And um, it was really difficult to map out, especially considering I hadn't even scouted in person a lot of the locations that we were planning on using in Vancouver later. So this was just based on photographs that I was, I was having to <laughs> make everyone feel confident that we were gonna be able to turn the corner and pick this up halfway across the world and that the scene wouldn't be uh, a, a disaster as a result of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of faith and trust that these things were all gonna work out. Um, but so the folk village was a huge part of shooting in Korea. We also wanted our 1980s storyline to be fleshed out with more Eastern modern architecture. And so we shot a lot of Solomon's um, exterior work in Korea and we shot that in three or four different cities. And then um, there are several backlots in Korea that have been built for various K-dramas and they're all Korean um, backlots. And so in order to get as much scope as we possibly could, we wanted to shoot on them, but we had to do a lot of modifications so that they read as Japanese streets instead of Korean. So we had a massive graphics team that were producing signage. Um, we had a lot of construction and paint workers that were modifying the architecture so that, you know, the tile roofs were Japanese instead of Korean or some of the you know, doors and windows tended to be the big thing that we had to modify. And so we come in and do these facelifts on the back lots. And a lot of those were used for our walk and talks or driving scenes so that we could get more length on our streets. And um, you know, there's a sequence in episode four where Sunja leaves to go to Japan and she leaves the boarding house. And from that point to the point that she gets to in Yosef's house, she, she leaves and she goes to um, the ferry station in Busan. And that was a location in Vancouver that we dressed and, and built out. Then she goes outside onto a dock and gets onto a ship, which was a build that we did in Vancouver. Um, and then we see the scene with the soprano in the dining room of the ship. And that's a location that we had to do a big build at in Vancouver. Then she gets off the boat and gets onto a train. And that was a train set that we had in Korea. Then she gets off the train and that's at a train station in Vancouver. Then she walks outside and she gets on a streetcar and that's at a back lot in Korea where we had to do a whole streetcar line and construction site. Um, she gets off the streetcar at another back lot in Korea. Um, and then she turns the corner to a back lot that we built in Vancouver. And she takes a two block walk to um, Yosef's house, which was built into the back lot. So just this one scene was, you know, dozens of different, you know, this, this crazy patchwork of locations and builds that none of us had seen in their entirety before we shot it. You know, it was just kind of me looking at photos and trying to say, okay, well, I think if we 
build this connective piece, then we can tie these things together. And if we if we <laughs> navigate all these things seamlessly, this could be a really epic se sequence. And that's what we wanted was to have the audience experience with Sunja this just totally drastic change of world by going going from her small house in Yeongdo on the island to um, Osaka, this huge industrial city and the kind of glaring realities, you know, she had idealistically, per, per, you know, had this vision of what Japan was going to be. And then she gets introduced in a much harsher way. And, and that was such an important thing to feel as, as, an, as part of the audience. And so again, I give Justin Chan who directed that episode <laughs> a lot of credit because I just kept telling him like, if you shoot this small part here and here and, and I'll figure out how to make it work. And, and he, he trusted me, which uh, there's a lot of people that would have been like, you're, you're crazy. Um, and I feel like it, it was a real victory for, for everybody involved that that worked as well as it has. Yeah. I honestly just amazed. I, I can't believe that this show is actually out in the world. Um, that it's, it's, it's just amazing to hear everything that you described and have it be so seamless. It's just, it's amazing. I, I, I just more applause to you guys again that is what you just described. I don't know how anyone um, has done, but that's astonishing. Um, uh, but my final question to you is, I mean, what do you hope that audiences take away from the show? Um, and what do you think this show's um, lasting legacy will be um, um, just from your perspective? You know, it's funny, um, a similar parallel to Mrs. America, I think um, was for myself and for the team that I worked with on Mrs. America, there was so much, um, just excitement about discovering those in, in, in the case of Mrs. America, these historic figures, but getting to learn more about them in a really fleshed out way. And um, it was a pretty popular <laughs> conversation topic in a lot of departments of people picking, you know, like kind of like the sex in the city game of like, which character are you? It was the Mrs. America, like, who are you most like? And you know, like, are you a Shirley Chisholm or are you a Betty Friedan? You know, like, who, who is the character that you most relate to? And we would also do that with the characters of Pachinko. You know, it's like, I think that what is a testament to the writing of both of those series is that there's so many really fleshed out, wonderful characters. And it's so easy to connect to all of them. And, but then also to find connection with a, with a specific person within, within that story. And so I think that, what I hope people take away from the show is um, as different as the cultures are, you know, between, you know, this is, this is something that visually and linguistically is, is a, it's not easy, you know, to kind of dive into this, but I think what's amazing about it is that it's so easy to connect to and that these are stories that are universal and approachable by everyone. And, and that there's characters that remind us of our mothers or our grandmothers or, you know, people we've come across in, in our lives. And I think that there's something about that um, that is really just so beautiful. And, and there's so much about the political situation that's happening in Pachinko in the 1920s timeline that's very similar to a lot of things that are happening right now. Mm -hmm. 
there's just a lot of ability to reflect on life and um, history, um, but also personal choice. And I hope that what we've done with the art department, you know, I'm humbled by the praise of how much people are talking about the look of the show, but I, I hope that our task when we started out of being a supporting role to all of these wonderful characters is, is the real victory that we just kind of helped pump them up and to allow them to exist in a, in a fleshed out world that made it easier to, to connect to. Thank you all for listening. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jackson Vickery. Graphics were done by Dylan Michael. And the opening and closing theme were done by Sterling Gavinsky.